Hello, everyone. I am Lauren C. Brown, senior producer of the Be The Bridge podcast. Today's episode topic is book bans. In a couple of minutes, you'll hear a discussion on this topic between our founder and podcast host, Latasha Morrison, and some of our members from our Be The Bridge team. Before we get started, we'd like to share with you the words from Grace Lynn. At the point of this recording, Grace Lynn was 100 years old. What makes what she shared so significant, Grace is the widow of a World War II veteran. Without further ado, let's take a couple of minutes to hear wisdom from Grace. Stick around to hear Latasha and the Be The Bridge team unpack the unfortunate hot topic of book banning. Now let's take it to the bridge. I am a hundred years young. I'm here to pr- protest our school's district book banning policy. My husband, Robert Nickel, was killed in action in World War II. At a very young age, he was only 26, defending our democracy, constitution, and freedoms. One of the freedoms that the Nazis crushed was the freedom to read the books they banned. They stopped the free press, banned and burned books. The freedom to read, which is protected by the First Amendment, is our essential right and duty of our democracy. Even so, it is continually under attack by both the public and private groups who think they hold the truth. In response to the book banning throughout our country and Martin County, last year, during the time I was 99, I have created this quilt to remind all of us that these few of so many more books that are banned or targeted need to be proudly displayed and protected. And read if you choose to. The quilt was shown on national TV as part of Ali Valshi's Banned Book Club segment. Banned books and burning books are the same. Both are done for the same reason. Fear of knowledge. Fear is not freedom. Fear is not liberty. Fear is control. My husband died as a father of freedom. I am a mother of liberty. Banned books need to be proudly displayed and protected from school boards like this. Thank you very much. You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. 
We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. Okay, Be The Bridge community. Um, I am so excited because I have some of the team with me today. So you know that we do something called Cultural Views. And so Cultural Views is an episode. um, This is a part of conversations where we go deep into societal and cultural issues uh, with the intent of exposing our listeners um, to opportunities for reassessment, Um, of your own values and perspectives. Um, And so if you've heard our last cultural views that we did, we did one on um, Christian, white Christian nationalism. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you want to go back and listen to it. It was so good that we had to break it up into two episodes. Um, And then we previously did um, a cultural views on gun violence. Um, And this was episode 250. Now we're dying deep into another relevant topic. And so hopefully that you can take these conversations back to your Be The Bridge group, to your community, to your family, um, and just your spheres of influence. And that's what we want. These are talking points. Um, Our opinions, our thoughts are our opinions and thoughts, but there are facts here. And so we want you to be able to assess um, the facts and give you uh, understanding from um, our Be The Bridge perspective. Um, And so today's topic is that of book bans. Book bans. And so this is um, not anything that's new. Some of you, um, it depends on how old you are. Maybe you have never lived through um, um, book bans. Um, But, you know, this is something that I know our parents are familiar with. Um, You know, I'm going to date my age now. I know this is something that was happening in the 70s when I was born, Um, you know. And so um, this is, it has historical context. And what we want to do here is not so much get into the mud of everything because it's messy. It's messy. But we we want to make sure we give you historical context so you understand that this is something that has happened and what the impact has been. Today's guest is Elizabeth Barons. And she is an educator with Be The Bridge. Um, She has been around Be The Bridge since the beginning. And so she is our researcher, our resident researcher of all the things. And so she's done some great research here on the topic of book bans. And then there's someone new that you guys get to hear. This is his first podcast. So you guys give a warm welcome. Be the Bridge community. Welcome to Mr. Jefferson J. Jones. Yes, I did say JJJ. <laughs> and um, Jefferson is new, is a new employee of Be the Bridge. He is now um, the uh, 
manager of our youth and university. So expect to hear a lot of great things coming from there. Jefferson, let's give you opportunities since this is your first time um, um, on the Be The Bridge podcast. Tell the people a little bit about you so that way they have a little upper hand so when they see you online, they kind of know and then people who don't listen to the podcast won't know. So they're getting a little tea and a little scoop, you know, by listening to the podcast. So just tell uh, the audience who you are right quick. Yo, what's up, everybody? It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Uh, I am, let's see, I got to always tell people I'm originally from Anchorage, Alaska. I'm not getting into all of that right now, but that's where I was born. Uh, But I grew up, spent most of my life in uh, the country, in the sticks of Virginia, Freeman, Virginia. Uh, I am a strong biology background, but I am a pastor, uh, chaplain, life coach, uh, bridge builder, racial reconciler, uh, married for 20 years, uh, 21 years to my wife, Rosa. We live in Duluth, Georgia, North Atlanta, and uh, two sons, got two boys, Peter, 14, Abraham, 12. And I'm excited to be with you all. I spent most of my life uh, working with youth and young adults, college students, and my wife and I have centered our lives around uh, being advocates uh, for young people and especially these generations because we believe in their voice and who they are. So cool. So we have Elizabeth and Jefferson that both have sons named Abraham. <laughs> So, yeah. So anyway, let's let's dive in. Um, So, you know, the current book bans that we have have a lot to do with um, limiting access, um, but also controlling who gets to make the call. And, you know, this is just when we're in a democracy, there's some things that can um, um, be harmful in that, because as, as we look at some of the books that are being banned currently um, as it relates to racial justice, um, these are books that are telling historical truths about people who are still living, you know, um, like a, um, um, I forgot her name. <laughs> Ruby Bridges. <laughs> yes, like a Ruby Bridges, you know. And so that is, those are some of the things that we're going to talk about today. But Elizabeth, give us a little bit of history um, on book banning and why this is something that we should care about and that we have to really understand the um, contextual background of this. Yeah, of course. So, you know, it's really interesting the... Um, you know, Sean likes to give me a hard time out when someone says, let me hear the history. I go back to like Aristotle or something. But honestly, with this one, like there really is a centuries long history of when one group takes over another group. One of the first things they do is they destroy things like any written record, cultural artifacts, um, bombing and burning of libraries and museums. Like that's a historical fact worldwide. And you might think, well, we're just talking about a handful of books and some libraries. No one's bombing the library. But but again, we look at that history and we see the ways that oftentimes it's like it starts with that restricting access. And then it kind of moves to, well, we're going to exclude those books from getting to be published at all to then. Then we end up with these, you know, pictures from a history of piles of books burning in a street. It, it's really about, um, this long history of saying um, that that books are not just um, about the paper and ink 
they're they are really a they're a cultural artifact. They're a way of saying um, a library exists, and what is allowed in that library is a picture of what's allowed in the broader culture. Who's allowed to exist? Whose stories are allowed to be told? Um, and so, when we look at book banning, both historically and presently, we kind of see these two. These two kind of bans come out of history. What you know, when we're not to the point where we're totally trying trying to destroy a culture via that, like bombing or burning or or whatnot. We we start with these bans, and it's either I want to ban the existence of this book as a symbol of really banning the existence of this person or this group of people to say who are simply trying to say like we we do exist we should be allowed to tell our stories and the ban is saying actually no like this counters our belief therefore your existence in the culture isn't allowed isn't warranted and then the other kind of band is more like a group of people telling their stories saying hey we've always existed and our stories have always mattered even if they counter your origin myth or even if they counter what you think is okay or the way you want to tell our narrative um, and a ban is a way of maintaining that cultural hegemony of like, no, we're, this is the group that gets to tell our history. And this, you can tell your history, but not if it counters ours, not if it messes with our narrative, because that, that throws off, that throws off that origin myth, that throws off that existence. And so we saw this really come out a lot post-Civil War in the U.S. with, with the Daughters of the Conf Confederacy. And this actually pulls into our last episode. We were talking about white Christian nationalism, yeah. where, remember, I was talking about how the Confederacy was explicitly a white Christian nationalist nation. Like, yeah. that was written into their constitution. They were mad it wasn't written into the U.S. constitution. Um, and so they explicitly wrote that in. And so when they lost... They couldn't say, well, white Christian nationalism lost, right? So they had to create a new narrative, which is where we get the idea, this myth of the lost cause, that this was, they were doing the work of God and, and this, you know, this secular nation won over, but yet we were still doing God's work and we're still going to labor for the work of the, of, of white Christian America and the South and whatnot. And so there was an active effort to tell history in a certain way. And any, anyone who really tried to counter that would be banned, would be pushed out because again, it fits that, Hey, just be, we're not going to actually allow that story to exist because it doesn't mesh with the, with the narrative we're trying to keep, to keep prominent. Yeah. And one of the things is this narrative, the pamphlets that the Daughters of Confederacy came out with that really guided um, the education system because they were in, they, you know, after um, Johnson comes into power, he was a Southern sympathizer and you have the Hayes Compromise, all these different things to take place. Um, and they became in prominent places of power. And so they pushed that narrative and agenda and even today, you know, presently today, we are dealing with that um, and having arguments about all of the things that um, this, the Confederate statues mm -hmm. that, you know, came up during the civil rights movement, um, you know, all of those things to counter um, or to um, really what you would say whitewash history um, and to to put people who were considered traitors yeah. and treasonous yeah. in our country in yeah. places of, you know, memorializing them. And um, and so even with that, those pamphlets were around until 1969. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so, you know, and they, and this is a big part of the, the um, structure of our um, school system where the books that get printed and what they have in them, the stories that are told. And this causes a major issue Mm -hmm. because then we're not starting from a common memory, from a common history. Um, So that too is going to change us having um, a common language. And so that creates tension. So this is even why we exist today, trying to right a wrong. And so we can't continue to wrong um, because our faith is about recalling. Our faith is about remembering. You know, um, we should be able to remember and recall um um, our, our, our history, just like we do uh, when it comes to biblical history. And so uh, this is this is really important because this impacts us today, because although that this was um, these pamphlets were around until 1969, if you grew up in the South um, and in a lot of places, the history that was taught was the lost oh, yeah. cause. Oh, yeah. And that is incorrect because it goes against even what the secession paper says. Mm-hmm. It goes against what the Confederate Constitution mm-hmm. says. Um, it's a lie. Mm-hmm. And so we know that when you teach a lie, there, there's going to be consequences. And that's also oppressive and it marginalizes groups of people. But we know that truth sets us free. So today we're going to talk a little about a little bit about truth. So Jefferson, um, you know, give give your two cents on this, and we're going to dive into um, just some questions that we have, and we just want this to prompt conversations. Um, you know, in your homes, in your be the bridge groups, um, in your communities. Um, so, what are some of the thoughts you have? You you've heard Elizabeth, you've heard me. What are some things that's coming to mind? Yeah, I love um, everything that is said already. And, you know, you made me think, um, uh, Latasha, about the biblical history. And, you know, I began to think about book banning and began to think about what was done with the Bible. And we know that there was a Negro Bible or the slave Bible uh, in the 19th century in uh, the British West Indies. And in that Bible, there was uh, 90% of the Old Testament was banned and 50% of the New Testament was banned. Why? Because uh, they wanted to suppress or hide or remove anything that spoke against what they thought was right about God's creation. And we know that when this happens, uh, it's just the controlling of a narrative. Yeah. If I can control the narrative, uh, I can then manipulate the people, but then also I can remove cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. And so in this, we see also this conflation of politics, uh, religion, and morality to where all of these things are now mushed together into this, like a, like if I took three different colors of clay uh, and I mushed them together over time, those three different colors are going to become one color. They're going to be like an ugly brown or some kind of gray. Um, So this conflation of things, why? Because I want to do anything that I can uh, to push against uh, any any uh, truth telling that's going to challenge my narrative. And I don't want to be challenged. And so that's what we're dealing with today when it comes to the book banning. We already mentioned the Ruby Bridges. Um, Then you mentioned 1969. And that made me think about five years later in 1974 in West Virginia, uh, there was a county that were, that they were trying to introduce multicultural um, language into their teaching and education. 
Well, there was pushback on that. And they, um, the, some of the teachers began to make noise and were in uproar and saying things like, uh, well, we can't teach this African-American literature because it would teach a ghetto dialect. And they would say that uh, Langston Hughes is anti-Christian. Okay, pause. Why would you say in, in a public school system in America, why would you say that some work in a school system is anti-Christian? Because we have the conflation that anything that is American is inherently Christian. Yeah. And so we, we dealt with those things and we're still dealing with those things today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, as we look at even some of the history, like there's books on the Holocaust that is um, being banned. Um, you know, there's there's. Um, um, there's a lot of like um, books on gender that are being banned. And some of these things we I know that we cannot take this broad, you know, stroke, brush stroke, stroke with this. But I also yeah. believe that uh, one of the things that we have to do um, as a parent, as a community, I think it's important where there may be books that I don't want my children mm-hmm. to read. And so I have every right to say I don't want my children because this goes against our values. It goes against our religious beliefs. But that's for me and my family. But when it crosses over to me telling Jefferson what his children should and should not read or Elizabeth what she should and should not read, what Mrs. Um, Smith in her class, what she should and shouldn't read. We're just it's a slippery slope that we what happens is so the target can be one group. But then you get now all of these things as it relates to anti-blackness, um, yeah. uh, you know, anti-Semitic stuff that that this um, this happening, um, and then that so you're you're playing a dangerous game when you start doing that um, because where does it stop? Because then on the counter of that, people can say, well, you know what, the Bible is full of um, of of rape. You know, there's wars, there's so much violence in the Bible. And I'm really uncomfortable with um, any religious books, you know, being taught. That is that is those are some of the things that can happen. So it becomes like this really slippery slope that we're on in this democracy. And those are some of the drawbacks of a democracy that we have to work through the tensions of a democracy. Um, Elizabeth, when we talk about. If, if there are books on the shelves of the libraries with content that, that it, it isn't suitable for children um, or could harm them, why shouldn't we ban them? Should, shouldn't we be actively working um, to protect kids? So I think some people are saying these books are going to harm, but I think we have to start is in how do we mm-hmm. define harm? Yeah, yeah. protecting, some, protecting, yeah. Kids, protecting kids from it? what? Is my is always my question yeah. um, because when you look at actually like what books yeah. are trying to be banned, there's a lot of books out there, um, historical books that are um, that are promoting white supremacy, that are promoting white nationalism. Those those aren't on any of the lists of books people are trying to get banned broadly across the country. So you have to realize yeah. like, what are we wanting to protect kids from? Is this really about protecting? Sp- kids in schools, which goes back to some prior cultural conversations we've had of like, what are we really afraid of? Um, And I think we've learned, and I mean, Jefferson knows this from working with youth. um, 
Assuming that you can simply keep your kids from engaging with content, if you just ban, if you you put up enough walls, if you put up enough bans, there's this idea that we can protect via some kind of um, some kind of barrier instead of saying, you know what, actually, let's think about like what does inoculation look like? What does it look like to say, hey? Mm-hmm. You're going to come up against this concept, that concept, this concept at school, in the broader world. I would rather, I, I know my kids are going to come up against all every, every concept under the sun. The, and, and also as a side note, the library is probably not where they're coming across those concepts, right? They all have the internet in their right. pocket. I am not so worried about a book on the bookshelf. Um but if I if I think rather instead of the exposure to that information is not where harm is done. Harm is done when a child is exposed to information or some, or harmful concepts, having no way to contextualize them, having no background information or way to make sense of it, um, and no comfort level asking questions. Because similarly, similarly to if a topic is off limits for. Um, in some people's minds for a child to access, they're likely probably also not talking about that around the dinner table. So when the child's coming up against a concept that maybe goes against your personal values, they're, they're going to be exposed to it at some point. It's up to us as parents to say either their first exposure is out there, the library, on their phone, a conversation with friends, or their first incidence with that concept is with me. And in a way that opens up curiosity that allows them to ask questions. So then when they do come up against that concept out in the world, they can come home and they know that's already an open topic of conversation. We talk about this with, in teaching parents how to talk to kids about race. Like that's one of the first concepts we cover, right? Is that, hey, like this yeah. should start, but like before your child even has language, you should be giving them language. You should be giving them ways to talk about these things. And so... I'm yes. not going to prepare my child for the world by thinking that I can just keep banning everything that I might disagree with from from around their bubble because at some point they leave my house and that bubble bursts. And I would much rather they have exposure in their high school library where they already have talked about it with me and they come home and we have a conversation and we deal with it and we prepare them to go back out into the world than have that bubble burst and then be like, what? Why, why were you, you were keeping all this information from me and why? Yeah, that, that goes back to, I think, you know, something that um, Tim Elmore read like years ago that this really that helps, helps with this is when you're talking about um, saturation, you know, um, isolation or interpretation. And so, you know, it's like you, there's one thing when you're like, kind of like what Elizabeth said, where there's saturation and there's no, they, they can't come home. It's not an open topic where they can talk about it. And then like, as a parent, if you feel like, you know, you're not equipped to talk about it, there are resources, there are people out there that can help, help you have these conversations. Just like if a student is having issues with physics or trigonometry and you as a parent are like, oh my goodness, I have no idea, you know? So I don't think they should do trigonometry or physics because I don't understand it, you know, but you're going to seek out um, resources to help your child um, understand, um, you know, trigonometry and physics, you know, in a deep, in a better way that maybe is not going to come through you. Um, the other thing is um, isolation, just trying to, to keep them away um, from things. That's only going to have them form op- opinions and 
and um and worldviews that are not you know, being shaped by you, you know, when you, when you isolate. Um, and then, you know, we see this as we're looking at um, some of the things from, um, you know, this, this new thing that's on right now. Um, I think it's on Netflix, but like um, shiny, happy people, you know, this isolation um, um, that, that, that you have, you know, um, that is not helpful, but very harmful. And then the thing is interpretation. How does does I as a parent, you know, teach language, open conversations, even when you don't know the answer, it's okay to say, I don't know the answer. I just never forget when um, I was in a, a, a store and this little girl was just looking at me. You know, when the kids are around four years old, they just say anything. And, you know, we I was one of those kids. My mom's I embarrassed her so much because I would say the first thing that came to my mind, you know, and just crazy stuff and staring at people because we're curious. We want to know, you know, you're developing, you're filing information as a, as a child. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so what this little girl, she was around four and she looked at me and I knew she was about to say something. And I was like, okay, what is she going to say? And this was a little white girl. And she looked at me and she said, look, mommy, she's chocolate. And, um, and the mom turned like feet red. Like she was so, she was trying to like get her to hush and whatever. And I smiled and I said, and chocolate <laughs> is good. Right. You know, and, and her mom was, and she was like, I love, I, the little girl was like, I love chocolate, you know? And I said, and she said, and I'm vanilla. And I said, and I love vanilla ice cream, you know? And we were just having a moment, but her mom, and she said, I'm just teaching her, um, you know, I'm teaching her her colors by things that we love. And so, you know, so she was doing that and she was giving her language. And what she was doing was filing that information. And when it came time for her to pull that information up in that store, she saw this chocolate girl and she was like, I like chocolate, you know, and, but she right. was teaching her pleasant words, you know, to associate um, colors with, you know, to associate ethnicity with. Um, and so I think that was just something that, um, you know, that she was embarrassed, but I kind of reinforced it. And, but I also had encounters with another little girl, um, that was in, uh, one of the carts of, uh, and looked at me and looked at her mom and she said, we don't like black. And her mom tried to get her off the aisle so quick. But these are the things we're learning to interpret. Now, do I think her mom said that? Well, maybe her mom did or she heard something. But if we don't cue our children, if we don't have conversations, then they are going to be cued by society. And as a parent, you have to make sure that you're helping shape that conversation because you're not going to stop information for coming. People have kids have access. So, you you know, you're going to cut off everything. You're going to ban social media. You're going to ban the internet. You're going to, you know, ban books, audio books, all the, all the things you're going to ban everything so that you can keep your child safe. That's not going to keep your child safe, you know? Yeah. And so I think it's, it's just, where does it stop? Mm-hmm. Because it's a very slippery, slippery slope that we're on. And I think that's something for us to, um, to, to think about because I love children and I want them to be protected. But I do understand that there's a right way and a wrong way as to go about it because a lot of us are products of the education system that has banned and isolated and and tried to justify what 
history needs to be taught and what doesn't. How many times, Elizabeth, have we been in a training and we start talking about the history of, of geographical racism or redlining and giving people contextual um, understanding. Yeah. To, 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 to really know why their community or why their state or their city is structured the way it's structured. You know, why in Texas, Austin, Texas, did they, they build 35 right through um, African-American neighborhoods? Same thing with here in Atlanta with 20. Um, why, why, do, why do we have this? And then when you start explaining the history, there's a good book, The Color of Law, for those of you who, who may not um, understand this, that really breaks this down and explains that these things were intentional and strategic. And then this impacts our wealth gap because those communities, their housing properties are valued lower or that, you know, my grandparents weren't able to purchase a house in the communities of their choice until after the Fair Housing Rights Act, you know? So when you start giving people that history, they're like, oh my goodness. Well, why yeah, wasn't I told I, I was just, um, it's been a few yeah. years ago and then I have some, I just want to like tee up and send Jefferson's way as our youth person. Cause uh, yeah. <laughs> the, um, I was working with a group of uh, moms uh, with the, a mops group, which if you are in the yeah. Christian evangelical, what you know, mo- mothers of preschool, preschoolers. Um, and yeah. it was this, it was, yeah, it was an all white them. moms group in my the area and they wanted me to just come. It was uh-huh. in the midst of, so, you know, things are happening in our city. And they're like, how do we talk? To, we've got these little kids. Come teach us how to talk to these little kids. And so I did my presentation. And then, like, as an aside, mentioned something about the intentional racial division in our city and how it was set up that way. And there was, like, a hush went over there. They were like, wait, what? Like, no one in the room knew the story. They lived in an all-white neighborhood. Their kids went to all-white schools. They were in an all-white church, and they thought it was an accident. Um, and so we went into that history and the, and so at the end, one of them, a mom asked me, she's like, why don't I know this? Why has no one told me this? And this ties right into what we're saying. It's like, I, I answered, I was like, who benefits from you not having this information? Who benefits from keeping this information out of people's hands? And I think we've got to think about that with book bans too. Who is benefiting by banning these books. Is it the kids we say we're protecting? Well, we've kind of covered that. No, they're not actually benefiting, which actually makes me think, um, like way back early 1800s, throwing it back in the history, there was a a book came out that at first got no publicity. It was a, a story about how maybe the world that would actually start and encountered some of the creation narrative. And so it didn't get any popularity until places started banning it. And then all of a sudden it started like everybody was reading it. It started getting published over and over and over again. And Thomas Jefferson actually said, like, I thought this book would be innocent because no one would read it. But it like basically if you would have left it alone, it would have been fine. But as soon as you persecuted the book, it will be generally read by the public because everyone in the U.S. will think it's their duty to buy a copy um, to read because Oh well, you can't you can't count our freedoms to read things, but this is what I want to up to Jefferson is like you're working with youth, like uh, the general response of youth when you try to keep, in, keep information from them and they're aware of that, like what do they do? Like we know youth, yeah. <laughs> right? Like how do you see yeah. youth responding yeah. to this? Yeah, we uh, you know we're wired though, even as mm-hmm. as humans. Uh, to touch the untouchable, 
if the stove is hot, let me find out. Let me let me put my hand on. Let me touch to see if it's really as hot as you're saying that it is. Um, and so when you're dealing with youth, when you're dealing with young people, when you're dealing with the nature of man, we like to go beyond the boundary. We like to eat of the fruit that you say I can't have, even though I can have everything in the garden. But no, you can't have the cherries from the cherry tree. I want the cherries. <laughs> so, it, so it is this um, that as we focus on a thing, if we if we hyper focus on a certain thing or a certain book, or we say ban this, ban that, those are the things that people want to gravitate to because then the the inquisitive part of youth, you know, that part of like, well, what what's really beyond the line? What's really in this book that you don't want me to know that's so bad? Um, and so as a father, also not just working with youth, but having a 12 and a 14 year old um, that we have created uh, a brave space in our home that our kids can ask us the hard questions and we'll have critical, you know, courageous conversations in our home. Yeah. Why? Because I am a steward mm. of my sons. I am the responsible one that helps to um, not necessarily shape everything they believe. Um, but give them a God perspective, a healthy perspective of what is presented to them. But then on the other side of that, I think, Elizabeth, the part that people don't like is that I don't get to dictate what my child believes and knows. Mm. Woo! Say that again, Jefferson! (laughs) I don't get to Mm -hmm. dictate what my child believes and what they know. Mm. But I do have a responsibility to provide a God perspective that is a healthy perspective um, as I'm shaping them to be responsible, uh, healthy adults that can go out into society. Because I don't teach them, everybody else is going to. But if I say no, 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 no to everything, then I'm going to close the door and they'll come to me for nothing. And so as we think about this book banning, it is it is a building of borders around the imagination of people, mm-hmm. because I want many want the imagination of their children to be a offspring of what they know mm. and not uh, not a development of what God is shaping in them or what's developing in them naturally because of the way that they are wired. And with this, all of this, I I think, too, it it comes down to um, these thoughts that people have that I don't want you to learn what I'm ignorant about or I don't want you to learn about what I have discomfort with. Mm -hmm. Because you bringing up the history or truth or, or truth telling, dealing with these hard issues, I haven't even wrestled with the discomfort and the pain that I have. So how do you think I'm going to be able to help you navigate something that I haven't even resolved in myself, 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 that I haven't even... Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Be The Bridge community. This is Latasha Morrison. And I am the founder and CEO of the nonprofit organization, Be The Bridge, and the author of the book entitled Be The Bridge, and the host of this 
wonderful podcast. I am so glad that you are here. You see, Be The Bridge responds to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world and believes understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial reconciliation. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but we are grounded in truth. We have provided this podcast as a resource to help cultivate courageous conversations and equip all to flourish. You will find interviews from a variety of thought leaders, faith leaders, and business leaders, as well as authors, artists, activists, and athletes. You will be encouraged. You will be challenged. But most of all, you will be changed. So go ahead and subscribe to the Be The Bridge podcast on your favorite podcast players so you don't miss out on any of these helpful and hopeful conversations. There was a woman, I think she may have been in Florida, but she was a survivor of the Holocaust. And she was reminding people um, in a video, she kind of brought her testimony to the um, uh, to a community event that they were having to discuss all the, the banning of books that's happening in Florida. But it's not just happening in Florida, it's happening in other places. And some places it's happening under, under this undercurrent, you know, with a lot of political agendas that are driving this. And so um, partisan agendas, let's say that, partisan agendas that are driving this. And so uh, one of the things that um, she said was, you know, pointing back to some of the things that were done to begin dehumanizing and, um, you know, um, a lot of the Jewish community was the banning of books, um, you know, removing them from, from history. And so she recounts that. Um, and saying, you know, like basically a warning, don't go down this slippery slope. Um, I, I, I heard recently, I think, uh, you know, one parent can complain and just think about the, the danger of that. One parent can con- complain and then a school is making a decision to ban the entire book. Like, like, so just think of one parent having that much power. Mm-hmm. That is a dangerous, slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Amanda Gorman's speech, um, which inspired mm-hmm. a lot of people, um, um, was recently her book was banned. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah, and I just got the white lady on the podcast. I just have a word for my people, real quick. <laughs> like when when we when we are the parent who is who is dictating you know, that broader thing, we are falling into a, a long pat- white cultural norm and pattern of um, allowing mm. our fear to be weaponized by those in power. Teach the so people, when Elizabeth, white people teach are people. scared, black people die. We've talked about that on prior episodes with guns and things. When white, when white people are afraid, black people's history gets erased. When white people are afraid, what happens to marginalized communities? There is so much fear that our children will feel any sense of guilt or discomfort. Or, I mean, there was actually a Texas legislator that said, like, I'm going to pull any book that makes someone feel any psychological distress at all. And I'm, 
we know what we but know what what's children? unsaid there, right? We know which children yeah, are actually children? worried about. They're not worried about the BIPOC children yeah. in those communities. Um, and yeah. so we are so afraid exactly. that our children will have any level of discomfort that we are willing to allow other children to end up dead. And we've decided yeah. that like that's a white cultural norm that is a historical through line through our history. And when we decide to play into that, because, well, no, actually this book, this book maybe actually really is dangerous. So this, this school, this, whatever you are playing into a narrative. And I want to ask that same question that I asked that woman in mops, who's benefiting from your fear, who's benefiting from your lack of knowledge, who's benefiting from that ban? Because I promise you Mm. that it is never the most marginalized in your community. It is always the most privileged in your community who are benefiting from you being told to be afraid, for you being told to push a ban. It is, and it is always going to lead to the further marginalization of a community. And when we are ever okay with a people group being marginalized, we are acting well outside our call to be life and to be light and to be love and hope in our communities. Yeah, so good. So good. I think even like this is not something that's just happening in the United States, as I mentioned, you know, the situation, you know, in um, um, in, in Nazi Germany, you know, but when we start talking about the worldwide banning of books, we also have parts of our constitution that protects us from some of these very things that are happening now. So it's like there are children's constitutional rights that are being violated. Um, right now as it relates to the freedom of speech when you start talking about um, book banning. Um, but you, you this research, when you start talking about worldwide um, book banning, um, there's a historian, Julian um, Petley, um, had, a, had observed banning works once they have been published can be difficult and often counterproductive. Um, as such bans tend to give the works in question a curiosity value that we mentioned this, um, or draw them attention to the public, which might otherwise have remained ignorant of their very existence. And so we see that happening where there's a lot of books on that list and they're saying, hey, go buy it. Um, and then a lot of us now, we, we are downloading books to our Kindles, to our yeah. iPads. Uh, we're listening on Audible. There's so many various ways where, um, you know, physical books are not just the thing that, you know, we're, we're talking about. You know, we have access to information from various places, you know. Um, and so we have to uh, uh, look, even look at that. Um, you know, I, I think there's, um, you know, when we start talking about worldwide book ban, and I just wanted to mention this because um, you did a lot of this in your research when you talked about um, Nazi Germany, uh, where, you know, um, you the Catholic state leadership during Protestant Reformation, they had a list of banned authors, special commission to address um, 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 literature, um, um, commission published list of banned books. Um, um, Spain during the, the Spanish Inquisition, um, Inquis- yeah, um, Inquisition. yeah mm-hmm. um, aggressively censored um um, books, um, you know, so these are China and Hong Kong use book banning and censorship to order to protect the Chinese Communist Party from criticism. We see this ha- happening in Russia. We see this, the access, the lack of access to information in in, in, um, in China, um, North Korea, um, the, you know, the, there's no um, 
I think someone is um, getting life in prison or either death penalty because they had Bibles. Um, we're on a slippery slope here in this 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 um, democracy, and so um, you know. Um, the history in Russia, um, you know, related to um, far right politicians, um, um, you know, um, um, sexuality, all of the things, the Philippines and um, the Philippines in 2021, um, you know, Saudi Arabia, um, um, South Africa, as it relates to the apartheid, um, they banned literature up into the 1990s and they had separate schools where uh, where the black South Africans were educated on a very minimum level, just kind of like our, our native um, boarding schools, you know, enough to just assimilate you and to, to dumb you down and make you ignorant. And so you create this society that you're still dealing with, you know, um, the legacy uh, of of those those harms. And so we can go down to Australia, New Zealand, and then coming into um, 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 America, where there was um, one of the most uh, banned worldwide books in history, um, you know, was this book called um, Ulysses in 1933, uh, or something like this, or a book, 1984, yeah, was it, mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth, if you want to talk no, about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just went, I just ran down the history because it's so much because I want to show you. It is by like 1984. Yeah, it's one of the most most banned books in history. And the crazy thing about that is that in the book, there's a branch of the government that's dedicated to it finding and erasing the past and having books rewritten to tell a certain origin myth. And I'm like... <laughs> We, like, we don't even see yeah. the irony and we don't see the irony right? like, like clinging to this idea of American exceptionalism while at the same time engaging in the tactics that come from like the most hardlined authoritarian regimes in history. Um, we, we want to still see ourselves as like on this pedestal, you know, even we talked about in the nationalism, this idea yeah. of like putting ourselves on the top of this hierarchy as superior. Um, even as we are engaging in all of these things that we would look, turn our noses up and look down on other nations for engaging and while we do the exact same thing. And that's a, that doesn't just go for book bands that goes across the board, but uh, it's very yeah. interesting to to see the same groups that are trying to hold us up as this pinnacle of like Christian nation, while at the same time doing the same activities as authoritarian regimes around the world and through history. Yeah, yeah, and that's just a slippery slope. What what would you say? Um, what does book banning have to do with racial literacy or bridge building? Mm-hmm. Mm, that's such a lovely question. <laughs> um, it made me think about, um, you know, when you have a specific entree or dish, uh-huh. say your grandma passed a, a specific dish down to you, and you know, grandma know how to make that thing. Yeah. And it hit, boy, that thing, right. it busting, it's it slapped. Right. Um, but if you took that recipe, and you took one or two of the ingredients out of that dish, guess what? You didn't mess up the dish. Yeah. So when it comes to book banning, racial literacy, and, and what we're dealing with, when we remove uh, people, uh, uh, stories and books that represent people groups, 
or represent the history of people groups. We are taking away from the wholeness of who we are as a people. When we, when we remove African-American literature, we're taking away from the truth telling, we're taking away from the stories, we're taking away from the experiences that people have endured in this nation and even other nations. Uh, and, and, and it cripples our ability um, to show a truer narrative that includes me, that includes you, that includes Asian Americans, that includes indigenous people. And, and it causes us to live life uh, with, 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 with blinded vision. Yeah. And we're not able to see beyond our own lens. And it, and it messes up our ability to even empathize uh, with other people groups. I'm reading a book now um, that deals with, that talks about reading um, black books and why it's important to read uh, books outside of our own ethnic group. Uh, because it helps me to not just see uh, see God and others, but it helps us to see just the stories and the experiences of people that I may never know or that I'm not surrounded by. Um, and so it's critical, uh, Latasha, to bridge building because, you know, if I say that, you know, I want to be a part of a community where there is equity, um, if I want to be a part of a community where there's harmony and, and dignity for others, um, then I have to be able to have access to the information that's going to uh, enrich my perspective, that's going to broaden or expand my understanding of other people and stories that I may have never known had I not picked up a book. Right, right. So good, so good. Um, what what do you think, um, Elizabeth, that Bridge Builders um, can be doing um, in their cities, um, if this is happening in your city, um, what can Bridge Builders be doing if there are efforts to ban books happening in their cities or states? What is something that um, be the bridge? You know, I know a lot of people are right now, they're seeing all of this happening and they're paralyzed. And I know I, when I read history and I'm looking at all the things that happen, I think about, you know, um, while apartheid was happening up until the nineties, what was the world doing? What were, what were like, you know, what you would say, um, white people in South Africa doing, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, you know, did everybody agree? Like what were people doing, you know? And, and then I look at some of them, like what we're doing now, you know, um, staying in our own like silos or um, paralyzed because of fear, um, not wanting to speak up because you're afraid of losing something. What can um, bridge builders uh, be doing in their cities and states? Yeah, you know, I, I pull in this um, when we're doing trainings. I have this concept when I talk about um, some of the the era of, of lynching in America actually is a way to talk about that idea of what are white people doing um, and that there's these categories right there are the active instigators they are the ones who are doing the actual physical work of of engaging in, in the lynching um, 
that group is likely not who we're talking to on this, you know, like that idea, like people that are trying to instigate these bans or trying to instigate the harm. Um, but the problem is that there's also these other groups um, that are that are just as necessary in order for that active group of instigators to have any level of success. And the first is the active bystander. And those are the people that would show up and watch. Um, they maybe not be actively participating, but they're showing up and watch. They're bearing witness while being a, still being a bystander. So they're not actually even trying to stop anything. And they're mm. also like lending credibility to what's happening by standing by and watching it. Um, and then there's the passive bystanders mm. who knew it was happening and stayed home, um, who are just as complicit mm. because they're saying, I know what's happening and I'm still willing to stay home. And the last group is, is people who are in mm. places of authority who, who actually have power to step in and could be doing something different and aren't. So I think some mm. of this figuring out which one of those am I? Um, is this happening in my school district and I know it's happening and I'm sitting in and I'm at the board meetings or something and I'm sitting there quietly watching? Am I at home pretending it's not happening? Or am I in a place of authority, like as a, a teacher, an administrator, a school board member? Um, so once we've kind of put ourselves on the spectrum of how are we and where are we in relation to what's happening, that also kind of gives us a roadmap of what we do next. It may be that you decide, you know what? I've been the passive at-home bystander. I'm going to shift to the role of someone who has power. I'm going to I'm going to run for office. I'm going to run for the school board. I'm going to mm -hmm. show up at every stinking school board meeting and be the really obnoxious parent. <laughs> like if I I'll be a thorn in someone's mm -hmm. side. Mm -hmm. Now that's that's not what everyone's going to feel the call to. There's also, uh, you know, there are figuring out who's running for school board, who's running for these positions in your area and making sure you are um, knocking on doors or putting up signs or, you know, donating money, whatever you can do to help get people into office who, who are a better representation of our communities. Um, but then there's also, I think, um, there is a lot to be said for doing some things at at, on the ground floor. Um, I've, I've heard of some people talking about doing this, doing this. I'm sure it's happening somewhere, but just people were starting parent meetings in communities where this was starting to get stirred up, where they said, like, let's get a bunch of parents together and let's talk about what we're actually afraid of. And let's talk about, like, how could we be talking to our kids instead of trying to ban the books? How, like, how do we how do we be yeah. parents supporting parents so that we can mm -hmm. um, counter that cultural norm of utilizing white fear and instead um, empower people to feel like, oh, I don't have to allow my fear to be weaponized. I can actually have better conversations with my kids. I can have I can be the parent who goes to the school board and board meeting and set stands up and says, hey, I may object to what this book says, but I'm really in opposition to you banning it. And here's why. Um there are a lot of roles to be played. Um, and the other is even there's just there's become a lot of great um, guides online. I know the Authors Guild has a great one out there. They have it's a stock a stop book bands toolkit. And it talks through like, you know, gives you some really specific language you can use to write to your legislators. Or, you know, there's a lot there's more of a to do list there. But I think especially as bridge builders. We need to be thinking really strategically about how do we how do we how do we build bridges within our community to open up these doors to conversation right. so that we can right. um, we can kind of dump water on the fear fire that's happening right like we can actually yeah. make it so that when when someone's trying to utilize fear and utilize bands and you trying to use us as that weapon, we can say, actually, that, that's not scary to me. I'm, I'm not afraid of that. Um, and I, yeah. I know my fellow parents aren't afraid of either because we've been talking about it. 
Right. That's so good. Those are some great points, you know. Um, what would you say also, Jefferson, to um, you know, I don't I don't even want to say really BIPOC. Uh, parents, because a lot of the targeted has been um, Black history. So I want to be, you know, African-American history. So what would you say um, to African-American parents in these communities um, where this is this is happening? How would you, um, what would you say to encourage them, to empower them in this moment where they feel fearful, they feel alone um, in a lot of these communities where one person can say something and you know you um, and you can completely erase this from their child's school, especially God forbid if a child is in predominantly white um, communities and schools. Um, and then I know there's some things that we're working on as Be the Bridge to be um, proactive as we see the culture going this way. Um, that we're not just dependent on schools to um, to teach children, but we're going to create other vehicles that can educate um, parents and children. So, what would you say to um, African American um, uh, parents and also other marginalized communities that are being impacted by this? Yeah. I think the first thing that I would say is that uh, to my parents, um, you are the most powerful voice in the life of your children. And even when you don't feel like it, uh, your kids are, are sitting. It's like sitting at the table waiting for every word that comes out of your mouth um, and that you have the influence uh, to uh, help your children know and to learn of the things that you feel to be important to them. And I would encourage parents to also invest in buying books. <laughs> invest in buying books. I mean, you if you could buy your kids a $150 pair of sneakers, <laughs> you can get your child a $12 book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, but seriously, um, in, invest in finding books the ones that are meaningful, meaningful to you, meaningful to your even your childhood. Think about the books that you read that impacted your life. Think about the people who uh, speak into your life and the books that they read and make a collection in your own home that your children can have access to. And I would even challenge, uh, you know, parents and communities to do a book, start a book club and actually, you know, pick a book, walk through that book and, and, you know, tear it apart and talk about different areas of the book and why they are important. And, you know, this made me think too, Latasha, something that is in the legacy that's uh, that's generational in not just African-American community, but in other BIPOC communities as well. And that's oral tradition. Yeah. And I think that that is something that um, not that it's fully lost. And maybe you can speak a little more into that, but is that there are uh, parts of it that are being lost. But I think there is a richness and value to oral tradition, especially in the African-American community, that when the books were taken away from us, they cannot take the story out of me. You might be able to take the book, but I have the stories on the inside of me because it's a part of my legacy. And I think that as we learn this and embrace this idea of oral tradition and oral history, uh, we'll be able to impart that into our children. But in order for that to happen, uh, we have to uh, learn how to value ourselves again and see the worth and dignity that we have, understand the Imago Dei and how God sees us and, and how much he cares for us. 
and that we have something to pass on to our children. Um, and I, I love what Elizabeth said of, of what was already mentioned and uh, Latasha, what you mentioned about, uh, you know, having these groups and forming groups in our communities um, and really holding each other accountable in a way that um, others are encouraged and kind of pushed a little bit um, to do what might feel risky, um, to do the things that even make us feel uncomfortable. Because even as there are others, you know, um, you know, white people and other groups who might feel uncomfortable with information, there are people in BIPOC that feel uncomfortable about addressing this because of what they feel might be lost. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, even with the summer, there's so many things that as parents you can do over the summer, you know, where uh, maybe there is something special your kids want before they go back to school or, you know, um, you know, so you, you know, we used to have this reading challenge in the church I was on staff with for the summer and kids who read the most books and they, they can um, either, um, they would could do a report, like a give you a high level synopsis on the book, but it was just to get our kids used to reading. Um, there's also so many documentaries. Let's not forget documentaries that can kind of stroke the yeah. curiosity um, that are on a lot of the streaming services. There are so many documentaries um, that are multicultural um, that tells the story of so many different um, um, people groups that you know that you can have um, as a family watch, you know, th this summer and kind of discuss it and, and, and have questions about it and talk about it where you're, you're giving them some information that they can actually pull up maybe later. Um, there's also opportunities, you know, um, I know that, um, I'm going to DC this summer for an event. And so I've already mapped you know, make sure that, hey, we want to look, we want to go to the Native American Museum this there. We want to go to the African American Museum. You know, there's a Holocaust Museum there. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's places, if you're going to California, you know, um, check out some of, you know, some of the, um, the Asian American museums that are, are listed or the monuments that are there. Um, Elizabeth, you're in um, mm -hmm. Kansas City. Um, you know, we have the, um, the, the Negro Museum. Yeah. Uh, let me make sure, you know, museum that's there uh, that, that people can check out. There's there's so much history around us where this information is available. Don't think that just because it's not about your um, community that it's not for you. This is the way we do cross-cultural racial literacy, uh, making sure. I want to make sure that as an African-American, I know the stories of other BIPOC groups. As a, as a, if you are a white person, you want your children to know and understand different cultures so that they can do um, bridge building work, so they can empathize and understand the stories of that community. I was watching, um, I'm trying, but I can't, I can't take it. Um, started to watch one of the Yellowstone um, um movie there's a show called Yellowstone and I was I think it's called 18 something I was trying to watch it but I could not I mean in in that movie you know that that show is really given the harsh realities of what our um the um, Native American boarding schools did to that community, the harshness and the, how it was instituted by missionaries, the Catholic Church, um, you know People that were supposed to be Christians that were brutal, you know, and and this is history that I studied when I was writing um, 
uh, my first book. Um, this is there's so much information out there, even on YouTube. People personally telling their stories, the impact of that um, that you can expose your kids to, and 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 know, um, you know, like just even looking at that to Yellowstone, it's hard. Uh, but just imagine, it's hard to watch it. But just imagine the people who survived it and who had to live it. You know, can we give them the honor of bearing witness? You know, and I think that's the thing is, you know, just imagine if you don't want your kids to to be to to hear it because it creates a discomfort. Think about the discomfort that it creates mm. for um, black and indigenous kids um, of their history being shunned or being denied. Just think about the harm that you're doing. And we're not thinking about any other kids, but one group of kids through that and the injustice in that of thinking about one group of kids. And so, um, you know, this is this is our um, um, our perspective. I think when we start talking about there was one tie in that I want wanted um, you to reiterate, um, Elizabeth, as we prepare to close. But you said. You know, when the the commonalities, the common threads between white Christian nationalism and mm. book banner. I want you to reiterate that as we um, as we close. It's going to make me remember when I get on tangents and what did I say? <laughs> no. no, I think the I think the link there is that white Christian nationalism yeah. can't flourish unless only white Christians get to get to tell the story, get to write the narrative, get to be the ones controlling the culture and the memory. And, um, and that's why there's the pushback. That's why there's the pushback. Even if they are, um, even if powers that be who would like to promote white Christian nationalism are trying to tap into other fears that parents have, the underlying current is, is one of power, um, is one of maintaining that, that norm of white Christian nationalism. And so, um, Book bands are, they're, they're about cultural memory. They're about, you know, every culture has that this is, this is an us and this is a them. Um, this is who's in and this is who's out. And book bands are, aren't just saying about these, what books are out, but these are what people are out. These are what people don't get to be part of mm. us. Um, and that's a really scary road to walk down, right? Because, um, and not just because, oh, at some time, may, at some point, maybe I'll be the one that's, that's pushed out. But because as a Christian, I care about that. They, even if it's never me, I care that there are people already being pushed out. Um, I can empathize with how that would yeah. feel, even if I don't have to be in fear that it would ever, ever would be, would be me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love, I love your recommendations. Um, I used to be a middle school teacher before I landed in this world. So I'm also like, yes, summer homework for the kids. <laughs> I'm here for it. There's actually a really, really great right. book that I think taps into, um, I, that I love this idea of over the summer and trying to get parents to really open up these conversations and how do we talk about this stuff at home? The book is called Tell Me Who You Are. And it's a whole collection of people's mm. per personal narratives and stories. It's written for, you know, young young adult into early adult audience. Um, and they are, yes, yeah, it is. <laughs> You're like, I, you know, that one on yourself. Yeah. And it's telling their stories and they have all different ways of identifying themselves. And here's how I think about the world and here's why, and here's where that comes from. And the, the openings that gives to help tap into 
even that idea of the us and the them of saying, hey, the us is going to needs to be it needs to be big and broad because God like God's version of us and them is not the same as this human version of us and them. Mm. And if we're trying mm-hmm. to live more Christ like, then we need our us to be much more expansive in, in as far as who we're willing to listen mm-hmm. to and whose stories we're allowed giving space to. Um, so I do like that book for for practicing that with kids and, and helping them better understand that they that this um, that creating a them that you then exclude and marginalize is never um, is, that never has never led to good outcomes and, and never will. So good, Elizabeth. Um, you know, as we close, um, what hope in this current cultural moment do you have? Because you know, we we see all these things, and it's just, it's like so much chaos around us. But then there's mm-hmm. also this element of 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 peace, you know, that surpasses our understanding, you know, um, what hope I think as I'm looking at, um, the students that we're engaging with and that we're talking with, um, that is my hope because they see the world very different. They are more inclusive. Um, they are more open. And of course, there are always outliers with within that, but I, I'm really hopeful. You know, um, I, I think about Elizabeth, even your daughter. Um, um, you send in pictures of um, your daughter on a cheer squad, and I, I think she was the only well, little um, um, white girl on the cheer squad, and she was cheering her heart out. You know, and I and I and I think about that intentional choice that you guys are making, and how that's going to take her so far in life. Just having that experience of understanding what it feels like um, um, to be the, the, the minority. And I'm pretty sure that wasn't easy. I've, I've seen another friend of mine and you know, where her son was the only white child that was on a basketball team. I see that all the time as it relates to um, um, BIPOC children where we're the only ones, but you don't really see that a lot on the other side of that because there's a discomfort that lies with that. So I'm, I'm, I am hopeful of the resilience and the brilliance and the wisdom of, of this generation. Um, they are, as a Gen Xer, sometimes I don't get them. I don't understand them, um, but I love them, you know? And so that that is something that, um, that, that brings me hope. What about you guys? Anything? Yeah, I, I think for me, I'm just, you know, listen to what you just said. Um, and I'm looking at the young people, looking at the college students, even my sons, uh, you know, that as they see, you know, what's happening with the book banning, uh, like there is uh, there is a resistance to the book banning. And I, I believe that creativity is birthed out of re- out of that resistance. Yes. That you, you can try and, and we but we know this to be true, Latasha, uh, generationally. It's a part of our legacy that you, mm-hmm. if you take this from me. I'm going to come back with something even more powerful. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it pushes, it pushes, it forces me to, to be even more creative, even more dynamic, uh, even more powerful that even as you push me down and try to suppress who I am, because when I think about this with the, with the book banning, it's like, if you, you're, when you ban these books, you're banning a part of me. Uh, yeah. But in that, that there's this cre- I'm hopeful for the creativity uh, that is coming out of these young people in this generation who um, are are a 
alive and who are vibrant and who are excited, but yet stubborn in a way that um, you're you're not going to stop me from being who I am created to be. You're not going to strip me of this. You can ban these things, but you can't ban me. Yeah. Okay, Miss Elizabeth. Um, you know, I, I would hope. say what one of the things that's giving me hope right now is seeing is is seeing the this slow growth of of white people into more of this movement into being bridge built. And I'm the the 2020 growth um I know it was exciting for a lot of people, but in a lot of ways it was even more scary for me because I was like, oh no, there's that whenever there's a big wave, there's always backlash. Here it comes. And there was. Um, but I think that there's yeah. a lot to be said for the slow yeah. growth. And I I see that that hard work being done there. And I think that's good. And I think it it calls to, you know, that trying to figure out how do we talk about this idea of whiteness, which we've talked, you know, we talk about at length and always kind of, when I've used that word out and out the world, it, it throws people for a loop and it causes all kind of tension. But I think about the work, I look back at the, um, you know, the four, 400 years of the redefinition of blackness is what I'm going to call it because, because the word mm-hmm. black was, was, was given a meaning that it, that it, just yeah. same with whiteness, both were social constructs. They were given a meaning, and it was right. and it was black people or people who were at that time were assigned and told they were black that over centuries said, you know what, that's actually not what that means. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean um, this derogatory, degraded terminology. It actually means it actually means black is beautiful. It actually means that there's there is history and legacy and culture and beauty in blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when there's this pushback in the modern day against um, the that we don't use the words whiteness and blackness synonymously um, or as like, you can't just change them out in a phrase and be like, well, if I, if I change that to blackness, that would be racist. Right. right? And it's like, yeah, yeah, it would be. Um, but part of that is because white people have not done 400 years of redefinition. We haven't. We, in fact, we've actually right. kind of doubled down on what we decided whiteness was going to mean. And so, but what I see happening now is, and what's been slowly happening the, small, small movements trying to redefine whiteness over generations. Um, but that group is growing. That group is growing. And we're saying, actually, we're going to oh. redefine what it what it means to live in a body that's labeled white, in a culture that's labeled white. Um, we're going to redefine that. And it's going to, you know what, it's probably going to take us some centuries. It really will. Um, I have no doubt that it will in a lot of ways, because that's how long it took to redefine other racial terminology. Um, but I am hopeful because I, I can look to other communities who have done that redefinition and, and been successful at that redefinition. Um, and so I have hope that one day we will be able to follow in those footsteps and also redef- like what, what does whiteness mean and that, that, it's some, that someday that is redefined. I mean, it won't be defined by being exclusionary. It won't be defined by banning and it won't be defined by nationalism. Um, but rather it can be defined as, as a people who, who reclaimed their full humanity that, that whiteness took from them because you have to give up a piece of, of yourself in order to engage in, in, in whiteness because it's so dehumanizing. Um, I hope that we can reclaim that and I see that work happening and that brings me hope. Yeah. And that's, you know, and for those of you who are listening for the first time, 
um, as we're talking about whiteness, that it's is an ideology. Yeah, it's an ideology. It's a way of yeah. It's an ideology that functions, a way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to know more about that, we have a uh, mm-hmm. foundations class, um, and soon more class, more classes coming that you can mm-hmm. take. Oh yeah. Uh, through the Be the Bridge Academy. Um, one is called Structures. Um, there are so many things. And so one of the things I was thinking about, um, you know, before I get into that, but thank you so much for listening. Um, these are um, just some prompts to help you continue this conversation and have these conversations, um, you know, in your community.